What if you start a nonprofit out of a for-profit, then that nonprofit starts its own for-profit to fund its nonprofit operations? Sound confusing? It's not, and it's actually an incredibly smart way to help change the world without constantly relying on donations and handouts to operate. FK Day co-founded SRAM, one of the world's largest cycling component brands. Then, after 20 years, he stepped aside to launch World Bicycle Relief. But he took all of the business lessons learned at SRAM and applied them to grow rapidly and make a massive impact through bicycle donations. You may not be empowering communities through cycling, but there are a ton of corollaries any entrepreneur can use to grow their business by empowering employees, building so you can scale, and going where your customers are. Listen in to hear how FK has built a massive global enterprise and his tips for doing the same with your own business. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. This episode is brought to you by Health IQ, the life insurance agency for active, healthy people that rewards you for taking care of yourself by offering lower rates. As in, you can potentially save several hundred dollars per year, which goes right back to your bottom line. I'll tell you how it works a little later in the show, but now let's get started. FK, thanks for joining us today. So you helped found SRAM, which is one of the world's largest cycling component brands, and that's a story I would love to dive into one day. But this episode is about what you did next. You and your wife founded World Bicycle Relief to deliver bikes to impoverished or struggling areas where residents need better transportation to improve their lives. So before we dive into the nuts and bolts of how you did that, is there anything you'd like to add about your mission at WBR? Well, I, I could say this, Tyler, that um, you know, it's, it, I, I feel very fortunate to work at SRAM and to be delivering products into the very top of the market. But we can apply everything we learn in that to now apply the technologies to the very bottom of the market, or at least the product development processes. So I feel super fortunate to, to have cut my teeth at SRAM, but now uh, it really excites me to apply everything I've learned there right into World Bicycle Relief. Right. And you guys started this because I think it was 2005, there was a tsunami, and it basically crushed an area when people needed some way of getting to and from whether to school or work or whatever and that was like why did that prompt you guys to act i i think maybe it's become uh because of traveling and developing countries for a long long time and just having this deep understanding that mobility or transportation is so essential to uh, everything that goes on in developing economies and we in the u.s or or Europe, we take our transportation so much for granted that we don't think about, you know, the the um, how how terrible it is to have your only mode of transportation to be walking, and the revolution that occurs if you go from walking to riding, and that's what deeply motivated us. 
Yeah, it's funny. I actually think about that sometimes. I'm like, man, just the things we do, just the entertainment options that we have, right? Like, if I want to go to see a movie on the far side of town, like, that's a 10-minute drive instead of a two-hour walk. It's like, you're right. It's kind of ridiculous how much we are able to enjoy in a fully modern society because of the car or, or, or the bike even. So how is starting a not-for-profit the same or different than running you know a regular for-profit company like what did you learn for SRAM or how is it different from SRAM versus World Bicycle Relief? Well I, I, I like to believe that we run World Bicycle Relief uh, like we do a business like we do SRAM. We apply everything we learned at uh, the startup of SRAM to the startup of World Bicycle Relief. You know, we operated on business principles uh, which includes, you know, measuring, evaluation. Uh, it includes all of those essential parts of a for-profit business applied to a not-for-profit business. Before we started recording, you, you mentioned something about, you know, being able to measure. And, you know, with, with a for-profit company, there's some obvious measurements like sales, uh, you know, marketing reach, uh, you know, units delivered, this, that, and the other. What are you guys measuring with World Bicycle Relief to see if you are or are not being effective? Oh, that's that's a really good one, and we take it take it very seriously because in the not for profit world, you you have to dig for less obvious things um, to measure to tell you if you're either creating impact or running efficiently. So if you break apart what we do at World Bicycle Relief into three basic areas, you can break them into healthcare, education and economic development. Those are the three key things we learned in our first uh, work with a tsunami work in Sri Lanka, that those, those were the areas that stood out as deep and immediate impact. So everything we did after that was modeled after those three key areas. So for example, if we were to measure the impact for our education programs, which basically provides large scale bicycle programs to rural students who live long, long distances from schools, some of the measurements for that program would be attendance. You know, we would expect to see the attendance go up dramatically. It would be performance because the kids are, um, have more time or less time traveling and more time either in school or, um, or consistency with going to school. You'd expect their performance to go up. Um, you kind of write down those lines. So we measure those very carefully. For girl students, we measure their ability to negotiate within the family. Now that's a little tricky, but we see the impact of that all the time. So for example, in many of the countries we work in, uh, the girl students bear the burden of the chores within the, within the household. So they have to wake up earlier, do more work than the boys, and often arrive at school um, either late or tired or miss school entirely. But with the provision of a bicycle to help that student get to school, suddenly she's able to get her chores down, done faster. They can use the bicycle on the weekends to help the family and therefore the household. And that changes her negotiation posture within that family. So these are just some of the areas that, um, that we measure the impact on that, uh, that help us refine our programs and determine if we're creating impact. Nice. And so I imagine 
for some people, they come out of you know college or grad school or whatever, all bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. They want to change the world. And maybe somebody doesn't have that prior business experience to benefit from like you guys did with SRAM. So for somebody that comes out fresh and younger or uh, very early in their career and they want to start a nonprofit or a not-for-profit and do something big like you guys are doing, what are some kind of core business lessons you took from SRAM and applied to World Bicycle Relief that they could learn from? I would say that the most important one, and it's a, we have we have the saying within the organization, is that all answers are found in the field. Like we we can't sit back here in Chicago and try to design an answer for something that's occurring in Zimbabwe or Zambia or Malawi. You've got to go in the field to get those answers. And I reflect back on when we started SRAM and our very first product. If you remember Grip Shift on the end of road bike handlebars. Yep. That was a peach. So one of our biggest problems was that we thought that the product was so good that everyone was going to copy us. So we chose not to show any of our customers until we fully came to market. So we didn't go out and find out if anyone would like this thing or if it would do what we had hoped it would do for the customers. We kept it, you know, we kept it secret. We didn't go into the field for the answers. We designed it ourselves in our in our warehouse in Chicago. So when we introduced the product, it was the wrong product. People didn't like it. They liked some aspects of it, but they didn't like that specific product. And that taught us one to be humble, which teaches one to listen better, and also to go out into the field to find the answers. So if if there is one thing that I could recommend to someone that you know, has, has not started a business that wants to either start a business or a not-for-profit, all answers lie in the field. Got to go out and get them. Yeah, and I think you, you said that was how World Bicycle Relief even kind of came to be too, is you, know, you wanted to donate bicycles to aid agencies that were already operating in the places where they were needed, but they were like, no, no, just send us money. And so instead of just taking that no for an answer, you went to the field and saw that, yes, in fact, there was a need for bicycles. So I like that approach. Yeah. Um, all right, I got a, just a, a quick technical question on the structure of it because I'm curious. Like, is there a material difference between not-for-profit and non-profit? And if so, like, why did you pick one or the other? Um, to the best of my knowledge, there is no difference. So we're a, uh, a, a, we are a not-for-profit, and it's called an NFP and it has a tax code designation 501c3 in the U.S., that is. And I'm not sure if there's a, dist- a difference. I'm going to have to go look that up. <laughs> okay. But the, the, the goal is the same for both, I presume? I, I think so. I think so. Okay. But I, I'm, I've, I've never heard someone go, oh, you're a, you're a nonprofit or instead of a not-for-profit. So I, 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 haven't, I haven't heard if there's a, a big distinction there. But I do know that... SRAM is a for-profit that founded a not-for-profit, and then the not-for-profit founded a for-profit. Yeah, and and I, we'll get to that because I think that's an interesting way of funding what you're doing. But uh, let, there's some other things I want to talk about first. So you personally, and, and I guess your wife as co-founder of WVR, right? She is the co-founder? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, you both had careers. You had, you know, presumably were a well-paid executive at SRAM when you started WBR, did, did you need that to be able to jump ship and, and do this charity work before, you know, before starting something like this? Or do you think somebody could launch, 
you know, kind of a, a big idea nonprofit with the goal of just immediately paying yourself a salary out of whatever money you raised. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I am so, so, so I, I was super lucky because SRAM, you know, the entire of SRAM, I was the, the head of product development at SRAM and SRAM believed in what we were doing by starting World Bicycle Leaf. So I lucked out in that I didn't lose my, my salary. I actually was able to hand over all of my, um, my responsibilities in product development and then apply everything I learned from product development into World Bicycle Leaf. So I'm, I'm just raising my hand and going, you know, I, I didn't have to, you know, wallow in the mud for too long. But when we started SRAM, we did. And, you know, one has to be prepared to, um, to, to really take your bumps and scrapes and, uh, and the risk that's involved with starting an organization. And when we started SRAM, there, it took us 15 to 20 years before we could sleep well at night, knowing that we would probably still be in business a year later just because statistically so many startups, be it not-for-profit or for-profit, they fail. So you've got to, if you're going to do it, I urge you to do it. There's nothing, nothing more miraculous than waking up with your feet on fire because you believe in what you're doing and you're doing it for yourself and your organization. But you've got to, you've got to be ready for the risks. You've got to be resilient and you've, you've got to keep your sense of humor because I'm, pretty darn certain that your first business plan is not going to work. So you've got to, you've got to stick to it, but listen hard because you might be slightly off on your first plan. Right. So, and, and even, here, here's, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, here's a, here's just an example of that. Uh, our first business plan called for selling 100,000 grip shifts our first year, 300,000 grip shifts our second year, then, you know, we would figure out what to do next, maybe go live on the beach. <laughs> our first year, our first year, we actually only sold about 850 units, and we had to take most of those back. So, you know, we could have given up then, but we thought we were onto something. You know, we believed that as badly as we had missed on our product, that there was some flicker of light there that were, was inspiring people, just not enough to buy and put our product on their bike. So you've got it. The resilience was, was really important. And I think maybe that's, what's great about going into business with, with your brother and friends is that you can keep your sense of humor and lock your arms and, and support each other to stick with it. Yeah. Do you think it's harder to do that in a nonprofit situation and not necessarily having that grit to, to carry on. But what I'm thinking is like, you know, if you were there and you needed to make a living telling the people who are donating to you that, okay, well, yeah, but I'm also making this salary. You, know, you might almost feel bad that you're pulling money out of something that people are putting money into because they want it to do good. Like, does that add an element of uh, trickiness to the situation? Do you think? Um, if, if you look at it, uh, from the business prism, um, as opposed to like being a, a warm, huggy, um, uh, not-for-profit. We're not a warm, huggy, not-for-profit. We are, we are, you know, sharp teeth business people running a not-for-profit. The way I would encourage people to look at it is that if you're taking a salary that's either removing cash from uh, donations or programming, 
you better be darn sure that you're creating extraordinary value that would not otherwise be brought to bear on the problem. And many not-for-profits think that they can't pay market rate salaries. But the problem is that if you don't have the very best people to apply to a problem, you're going to waste so much money running around in circles. Whereas if you are able to hire and retain the absolute best people, it's going to cost money, but you will plow through your problems faster and smoother than uh, by skimping on the salaries. Right. I like it. And then so the money that's left over at the end of the year, what a normal business would take as profit. Do you guys, what do you have to do with that to maintain a nonprofit status? It, it all goes back into the programming. Now, a lot of the, um, the goofiness of uh, not-for-profit accounting, and when I talk accounting, just realize that I'm getting way out of my area. They don't let me in the accounting department. It's ran. But essentially, not-for-profits are judged on a, on a year-by-year, almost a calendar-year basis. So if there's money left over, it does kind of pose a question. So you've got to be able to explain why there's money left over and it wasn't put into programming the previous year, but it's going into programming the next year. So, and I think people are getting a lot better with that. They're recognizing the, um, the weakness of running a not-for-profit like a not-for-profit as opposed to running a not-for-profit like a business. Right. All right. So let's, now let's talk about the for-profit that your non-profit or not-for-profit started. Um, and maybe you should tee it up with, you know, be prior to this, where were your donations coming from? And then what is the for-profit side of it? And how does that now fund what you're doing? Yeah, good one. Good one. So the, um, so uh, when we first started doing programs, our very first program was in Sri Lanka, where there was, they had, um, you know, there was, there was uh, an infrastructure of cycling on the island. Um, you know, everything two miles in from the ocean got destroyed, but there was, there was still an infrastructure of cycling. So there was bike production, there were spare parts, there was technologically appropriate um, bicycles available right there on the island. So we built our program off of that uh, supply chain. When we got to our first program in Zambia, as soon as we finished the tsunami program, we found that the infrastructure of cycling didn't exist. So the only bikes you could acquire locally were cheap bikes coming out of India and China. And those bikes, you know, we went out and we bought like 10 of every bike available. We put it in the deep in the villages and then we'd simply observe what, what happened. And what we found is that all of those bikes failed, you know, starting like the first day, and then after a couple of weeks, they were all destroyed. So we, in essence, had to go in and retool the entire supply chain going from Zambia right up into India and China and into the producers of frames, forks, and components to help get those strong enough to be able to serve programs in, in these developing countries. Once we did that, people started coming to us, individuals and you know, governments and not-for-profits started coming to us and saying, hey, we haven't seen a bike that can survive. Can we buy your bike? So we thought uh, we would love to do it philanthropically, but actually we have to set up a for-profit organization so we can serve 
serve that market appropriately. All the profits from the for-profit then go into the not-for-profit. So we kind of stumbled on an amazing model that um, helps fund everything we do philanthropically. That's nice. So and you were, do you, you mean were, everything? Like, is that the sole source of revenue now, or, or I guess inbound cash for the World Bicycle Relief? No, not yet, not yet. I, you know, in you know five, ten years, it's possible, but. All of the bikes we sell, so for example, if this year we do 70,000 bikes in you know, multiple countries, probably half of those will be sold for profit. Our biggest customers would be corporations and NGOs, you know, CARE, UNICEF, um, you know, Save the Children, World Vision, those guys. And then the other half, we would run through our own philanthropic programs that we measure very carefully and then publish the results. So in a way, the philanthropic side is able to take on this role of running cutting edge programming and then publish the results for other people to copy. And if they choose to use us to help them copy, that's no problem. If they choose to copy on their own, that's no problem. Cool. And so earlier you mentioned, you know, you need to get out and be in the field to see what the real needs are. So what is the structure of your company? I'm guessing you have your management team there in Chicago where SRAM is headquartered, but like how and where are your people situated throughout the world to best oversee all those foreign projects? Right. We, we, um, in the field, we try to hire um, only nationals and, um, you know, we try to hire the best, the best that are available. I think we only have a couple of, uh, uh, for example, in, in Africa, that where we do most of our programming, I think we only have, we might have three expats, it's like two Americans and a Canadian, and the other 130, 150 people are all nationals. So typically what we would do is we would hire a national director. You mean like a, you mean local, a, right? Like national means a local person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just so making sure. <laughs> if we were, no, good, good point. But if if we were um, running program in Zambia, which is our longest running programming, we have a national director that then has you know a series of officers reporting to them, and then we have. Uh, an assembly facility. We have trainers that train field mechanics. Um, we have, uh, uh, as we call it, M&E officers, measuring and evaluation officers, that all they're doing is measuring the impact of the programs and publishing the results. So that's, that's sort of the structure we have in the, in the areas that, um, that were most developed. All right. So you guys are providing equipment rather than money, which enables the people to do better for themselves rather than just become reliant on a welfare-like system. And I think there's a big parallel there for running a company that we should all kind of empower our employees and contractors to do better work by giving them the tools they need rather than just like tell them what to do or, or this top-down approval system. I, it's not really a question, but I don't know if there's any comment you can make on that as to what works well and what doesn't in your situation. I, I think, um, I think you're spot on. You know, we, we can give guidance, uh, and data to, um, to national directors, for example, but then they're going to have to socialize it locally. 
Like if we have seen great results using a particular model of operation, but once you get into the culture of a new country, then it, sometimes it might not work. So we don't do, um, uh, there, are, there are some countries that uh, really frown on girls riding bikes. So we have to choose, do we try to break through that stigma? You know, or do we just move on to another country where the culture is more embracing of girls riding bikes? So those are the, those are the decisions we really want to push all the way down into the field as opposed to take those you know, as from ourselves up in Chicago or something like that. But that's where we begin to really use the local knowledge and the local relationships to guide us. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of like the, the corollary for me, you know, like I've got writers for Bike Rumor that have very different work at style, not ethics, we're, we're all pretty motivated to do what we do, <laughs> work styles, you know, some of us like to post early in the morning, others late at night, and, you know, edit their photos a certain way, and, you know, I could think like, as a control freak, I'm sitting there watching some of the, them do their work, and I'm like, ah, that's not how I would do it, and I, but I stop myself, I'm like, yeah, but they... they I've given them the overall picture and the goals. Here's what you need to do. And then you, you got to let them go and do it. And then, like you said, you know, where there's some programs you may not implement because the culture's too different. I think that's simply a matter of, you know, there's probably going to be times when there's a person that you're working with or a team that it's just not a good cultural fit. And that's maybe something that might be hard to figure out at first. You're like, well, I've given them all the tools. They're just doing it their way. But I guess you, at the end of the day, you have to measure results before or not before, but, you know, measure results to see if it's actually going to work out or not. Yeah. I love your, I love your, your story about, um, you know, your colleagues that are doing it differently than the way you really want them to do it. But, you know, what are the, are the results speaking for themselves? So here would be a good example of where um, we ran into that and we had to make a difficult call and we shut down a program. So we were working in South Africa for several years. We had a, a, a very good assembly facility, and we were running these programs connecting rural students with distant schools. And we were a lot of bikes were going out, and there was a lot of excitement. And we were measuring the impact, and there was very little impact compared to, um, you know, what if the kids were just walking? And what we found was that there wasn't a culture of cycling in South Africa the way there was just across the border in Zimbabwe or, or Mozambique. And because of that, the kids were using the bikes as toys as opposed to tools. And they were kind of being left behind. But we found that if we just crossed the border into Zimbabwe, the results of that program just go off the charts. So we had to make the very difficult decision to shut down our operations in South Africa, which is disappointing. I think we were up to 10,000 bikes a year or something like that. Well, they're, at least they're having fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would hope. Uh, so I think one of the steps in doing that and trusting the locals to do what they do or trusting your employees to do what they need to do is instilling a deep knowledge of both the mission and the end goal. So how do you do that? with your team and how do you get that to trickle all the way down to the, you know, the, the end point with the person say in South Africa or Zimbabwe, uh, communicating to the end user of those bikes. 
You know, I think um, the same as from a, a for-profit business. You know, we use a, a blend of um, data, uh, vision, and cultural nurturing. So on the culture side, we we nurture a we nurture a culture of, you know, integrity, urgency, um, you know, commitment, uh, teamwork. From the data standpoint, literally, we drive our programs based on data. We might take a vision and then apply data to it and then have to tweak the vision. So that's kind of the way it works in, in business. Or if, you can, if you can accomplish those three things, then, um, then good things should blossom from that. Once the tsunami relief effort, which was your first big project, was complete, people saw that success and they asked you to tackle some serious issues in Africa that were kind of way beyond that scope of your original idea from what I was reading. So, you know, you went from just being able to provide transportation for people to get to and from school and work to all of a sudden you're creating a transportation system to run medical supplies to and from, health training to and from, you know, plus the school, plus the work and all these things. Was that... Was that a big pivot for you guys, or, or did you structure the company to be pretty flexible? I, I think all along we'd, um, we'd structured the organization to run like a business, which is be very, very lean, um, trying to uh, try to anticipate opportunities and problems, and then be ready to act on them. And when we started World Bicycle Relief, we had no intention of going beyond the tsunami relief. When we completed the project, we, we kind of swiped our hands and gone, wow, that was unbelievable. We had measured it. We had plenty of data. We published the data. We said our job is done. But then we, we, you know, someone came to us and said, you know, the work you've done here is great, but do you realize the same number of people that died in the tsunami die every two weeks in Africa from hunger and preventable disease? You've got to scale this up in Africa. Because we had formed World Bicycle Relief like a business, meaning that we were, you know, we were fully legitimate, bona fide, we had identified all the supply chains, we knew how to run the programs, we had documented it, we'd measured the data, we were able to quickly pivot and move into Zambia. Our big piece of naivety was thinking that we could run the same supply chain that we had run in Sri Lanka. But when we found that there was actually no supply chain intact, that's when we were able to apply our knowledge um, in the bicycle industry, learn from SRAM and other industry leaders to quickly recover from that naivety and begin to move into providing bikes in, uh, you know, in parts of Africa. Cool. Yeah. I, and I want to talk to you about the supply chain, but first to kind of carry on this topic, you know, I think the takeaway for entrepreneurs here is that you might need to think about building your brand or you might initially be thinking about building your brand product or service to solve one problem, but then the end users might find a different use for it. And you need to be able to adapt and take full advantage of new opportunities like that. The, um, the flip side would be that you could also overextend yourself. And so you mentioned that you closed the program because the bikes weren't getting used the way you intended, but are there areas of the world where, uh, people want you to come into, but you've declined, and if so, why? Um, yeah, that's a really good one. You know, there are we we kind of have this um, uh, imagine in your head a Venn diagram of, of three circles, um, and they're all they're overlapping circles, and and in one circle it's you know clear impact, 
And, you know, whatever we do has to be impactful for our intended mission in that country. The other circle has to be implementability. And none of us know if that's actually a, um, a word. But for example, if um, we would be very reluctant to go deep into the Congo because of how difficult it would be to go there and at high risk and how high risk it would be for the employees. So that would be implementability. And then the third one would be, can we build a social enterprise off of the momentum that the philanthropic side drives? So where we find the overlap of those three circles, that's really the sweet spot for us. We might go in on just one or two of those circles, but if someone came to us and said, I want to fund a program uh, with you and we establish that the three circles exist and there's a point of overlap, we'll, we'll do that program. And we've, we've, uh, an example of that might be um, uh, a large corporation came to us and said, you know, we looked you up in the internet, we see what you do with students, particularly girl students in the rural areas. We do a lot of agriculture in this one particular country and we want to fund 5,000 bikes. We do a quick study. We find that we, we, we would get superior impact. We have the ability to implement and highly likely, likely that a for-profit social enterprise would emerge out of that. So we implement it. And those, that to me is the sweet spot. We might deviate slightly depending on the circumstance, but that's, that's really, how, uh, really what guides us. Yeah, well, I, I think that's important. You've got this criteria set that you can measure an opportunity against, and that's probably where a lot of, especially startups, you know, they they want to say yes to everything. And I think it's important to sit back for a second and, and create that criteria against which you can judge all opportunities, so that you're not spinning your wheels or chasing things that just don't make any sense. Um, the one thing I thought of too, when you you said you know you went from the original plan was just take care of the tsunami relief, and then you're like, huh, cool project project uh successful we're done but the way you structured it and i think even the name and this is where i see a lot of you know local businesses making a mistake if they ever went to scale you know you guys didn't call yourself uh you know sri lanka tsunami relief you called it world bicycle relief so it didn't really matter where you went next you could handle that and it's i liken that a lot to um you know say there's like I live in Greensboro, so Greensboro's best yogurt. Well, that shop is never going to be able to expand outside of Greensboro. And, and so it's just another thing I try and encourage entrepreneurs to think about is, okay, think through your name and your branding and make sure that you can scale with that because it's really hard to change that down the road. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great, great point. And there's, there's so many choices that one makes as, you know, when one starts uh, an organization or, or runs kind of a, an, an infantile organization trying to turn it into an adult. So many of the choices could be tempting to do expediently. Whereas if you sit back and take a little more time and go, okay, I've got either a problem or an opportunity here. What choice can I make that would guarantee my ability to scale that choice up? So an example might be, so we do these programs connecting rural students to diff distant schools. If we needed to have a, um, if we needed to have, you know, a hundred individuals per school to make that school successful, that's not scalable. 
we've got to create a model that pushes decision-making down into the school, into the community, and that's scalable. So it may be tempting to refine your program so much that, that they can't grow, um, and one has to resist that and simply go, can I scale this? Can I do it more than once with the same result? Or does my model requ- require me to invent a new model every single time I do it? Yeah, I like that. Um, all right, let's talk supply chain. So one of the things people might not think about is that if you wanted to deliver a product or service, you need to understand the supply chain that gets it there. You know, for you guys, it's bikes and having that infrastructure of um, not just the bicycles themselves, but, you know, replacement parts and repairs. So you guys kind of handpicked the bikes and parts you wanted delivered. But early on, were there any problems? Oh, I know there were problems with the equipment. Maybe you can talk about some of those and some of the issues that you had with getting the bikes to and from and keeping them up. And then how did you solve those? Uh, good one. <laughs> Gives me the uh, shivers. The, um, <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when, when we first went into Zambia, and uh, Zambia was our first country, we, we found that all of the bikes that were available, for no matter what price, all of the bikes available would fall apart almost immediately. And we began to realize that the supply chain, so either call it the brand or the manufacturer, became disconnected with the end user's needs. So now the end user saves up money for half a year. He buys a $80, $100 bike. The bike falls apart immediately. There's nowhere for him to turn. No one is listening to his problem. So the manufacturers became detached from the end user. And if you're detached, the only way you can compete is on price. And everyone competed on price, which drove the quality and the performance right out of the bike until it no longer would survive. So what we did, our real trick was to come back in and reattach the end user's needs to the supply chain and then train the supply chain how to make parts to serve the end user's needs. And that's something we knew a little something about. But that was that was the biggest surprise to me. And we would go to these suppliers and we'd go, do you guys realize your bikes fail almost immediately? And they would all go, no, 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 our bikes are the best there is. And it's like, no, look at these. Here's, here's a bunch of crap parts that just broke and you just failed someone and, you know, for their hard-earned money. And they, they wouldn't believe it. And when we offered to help them fix it, you know, most of them said no. There was only one supplier that said, oh, I had no idea our bikes were breaking. Help us fix it. And we went to work with that at that organization. And now that organization probably makes quite a bit of money through what you buy from them, right? Uh, yeah, we, are, we actually, um, after five years um, of, of improving their bikes and their suppliers and their processes, and we were better than anything else, but nowhere as good as we needed to get, they kind of you know, raised their palms facing upwards and shrugged their shoulders and said, this, this is kind of as good as we can do it. And that was that was a that was a, an Indian supplier, and uh, at that moment we began we shifted over to China where we had better product development resources and and a better supplier base. But interestingly, because we had helped that particular supplier, they were able to begin selling bikes into Europe. So it's like now that's the way it's supposed to work. You know, if we can help you become better to serve us, and you take that knowledge to expand your own business, that's that's good economics, man. 
Yeah, that's, well, that, that's, that's a huge lesson for anybody. You know, when somebody comes to you with a problem, don't just, you know, turn away and say, no, no you obviously don't know what you're talking about. Right? Like, listen and take that in as constructive criticism and improve from it. Because look at the opportunity that that company got out of it that none of the other companies got from your feedback. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it changed their yeah. entire world. <clears throat> yeah, it was funny. Even uh, even some of the um, the local distributors who all they were doing is selling bikes. They they had no idea who the end user user was. They would say, "All people care about is the price. That's all they care about. They don't care about anything else. So it's just the price." And we're like, "Actually, no. We kind of think that um, uh, performance, durability, reliability, repairability. These are features and benefits that your end user wants." and would differentiate you from the rest of the junk that gets dumped on poor people. And, you know, today, those same people that said, you know, price is the only thing that matters, now buy bikes from us. <laughs> and so we're how do you, teaching their supply. Yeah, how do you communicate that? Because uh, on the one hand, you donate a lot of bikes, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so on the one hand, now some of these people that may have saved up for a year to buy a piece of crap bike are, are getting a bike at no cost to them to, through your program. But on the other hand, now you have this bike that presumably costs a little bit more, even though it's you know many multiples better. But I look at this the same way. It's right. How do you convince somebody to go buy something that's a little more expensive when they just don't understand or, or maybe even believe, based on past experiences, that there's anything to justify spending more, you know, and you could even look at the, the parents who probably know the bikes that they're buying through big box stores like Walmart or something are nowhere near as what's good in a bike shop, but they don't even bother going into the bike shop because they just assume it's going to be way more expensive. Like, how do you, how do you convey that message that, Hey, you know, if this is easy, spend a little bit more and you're going to get something that'll last you, you know, five years or more. No, it's a, it's a good one. And it, it's we we kind of stumbled upon this, and that is whenever we ran a philanthropic program, let's say uh, let's say we're working in Zimbabwe and we provide twenty five thousand bikes to a healthcare program, you know, volunteer healthcare workers out in the rural area, and now they're riding around caring for their villages and communities, and people start to see those bikes and recognize that. Oh my gosh, those are not breaking. You know, those are lasting for, you know, months and years. So in a way, the philanthropic programs are beginning to drive social enterprise business choices. So those folks in the rural communities would would go, you know, I'm I've got to get myself one of those bikes because I, I need it for my farm. And here's a here's a crazy example. So um you know, a little while back, I get a call from uh, our, our head of Zimbabwe operations. And he goes, FK, you won't believe what just happened. Like these two girls, women, young women, walked about 170 kilometers in from the rural area with $160 U.S. So they had switched to American currency, $160 crumpled $1 bills, like stuffed all over their clothing just to buy a bike because they had seen a healthcare worker using the bike in the community and they needed a reliable bike for their farm. I couldn't believe it. You know how risky that is? That would be stupid. That would be like wearing a sign saying, shoot me and steal all my money. But they, they did it. And it was because the philanthropic program 
showed or demonstrated that a quality bike was available and if they bought it, it would last them for years and years. They're your influencers, right? <laughs> Without social media. <laughs> yeah, in a way, in a way. In just a minute, we'll wrap up with my final three questions for FK. But first, a quick sponsor message. This episode is brought to you by Health IQ. We may not all ride bicycles, but we can all use relief from high insurance costs. That's where Health IQ comes in. If you stay active, eat right, and lead a healthy lifestyle, they can probably save you a lot of money on life insurance. Whether you're a founder or a family leader, there are people relying on you for their livelihoods. You need life insurance. That could be co-founders, investors, or significant others. Health IQ negotiates with underwriters to get you better rates by grouping you with other healthy people rather than the general population. You get better rates, which means you save money, which means you look better to those co-founders and investors too. To get a quick free quote and help support this podcast, go to healthiq.com slash buildcycle. That's healthiq.com slash buildcycle. Thanks, and now back to this episode. All right, so I've got three questions I'd like to kind of wrap up the interview with. Uh, the first one is, what are one or two operational or logistical management, whatever issues of running your business that keep you up at night? Um, maybe coming from a product development background, uh, I, I look at how far we've come and I just know that we can go farther. And uh, I'm convinced if we do that, um, we will we will continue to make a huge huge dent in the bottom of the economic pyramid in transportation. So I'm I'm obsessed with you know uh, performance and price and bringing more usability of the bike into the marketplace. So the the next thing that keeps me up at night is the possibility of creating an absolute sustainable. Uh, organization without philanthropic dollars, and I, I I I like our model of running philanthropic programs right next to for-profit programs because the philanthropic work can kind of operate in areas where you couldn't get capital to go. So it's like that's that's where you should run your philanthropic programs where you can never attract investors to get involved, but. At some point, I want our for-profit organization that's owned by the not-for-profit, I want the profits coming from that to fully sustain the not-for-profit. So to me, creating that economic engine is would be the greatest gift and the greatest impact that we could ever make to developing countries. And again, it's, it's kind of based on economics. Philanthropic programs will help people in deep need, but it's economics that really really moves the dial yeah well it's it's almost like sponsorships right you know like one of my past interviews was with mike Cotty, the call collective and every season he had to go get new sponsors to make sure that he could keep running his business and i guess the same with philanthropy right you you run out of money and you got to go back to the well and try and pull more out of it and you know creating that self-sustaining source of income seems like it would be a huge burden lifted uh, which kind of is my next question is, you know, what, is there a product or service that you would like to see created that would help ease those burdens for you? The, um, you know, we've really, really focused a lot on uh, improving, you know, the bike and the components of the bike. And, you know, it's, it's not just using SRAM skills, but, uh, you know, many of the leaders within the bike industry, including, you know, Trek and Specialized and Giant, these guys are, 
deeply involved helping us improve the bike and making it better for the end user. We've just begun to um, uh, start up our own shops in a lot of these local countries. So Buffalo Bicycles is the name of the, the brand that we sell the bicycles under. Buffalo Bicycles Limited is the for-profit entity owned by the not-for-profit. And we just started putting in bike shops as a way to ensure spare parts are flowing you know, deep into the fields. And what we're finding is those shops turn profitable within six to nine months and then start upstreaming profits into the not-for-profit. So I think we're up to about 12 or 15 shops right now in, in Kenya, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Malawi. And if we can keep going at that pace, then not only are we going to be funding or better funding the not-for-profit, but we're also creating a deeper link with the end user and ensuring that the supply chain and quality of parts going into the field is sound. Now, the way you do that is by creating products that people want. So be it components, people love our, our bottom brackets and our rear hubs and our tires and tubes. And, you know, they love those. So they'll buy those and put those on their own bike, or they'll simply buy a brand new Buffalo bike. So that's driving uh, a lot of sales. And I believe that that is the, that to me is a, a huge opportunity that if we can continue to provide either constantly improved products or new product development, we're working on drivetrains and brakes, trying to put two gears on a bike instead of just one gear on a bike. That's miraculous, but we take it all for granted, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, baby steps okay. to get up to your 12-speed SRAM Eagle, right? <laughs> right, which wouldn't wouldn't last very long over over in Africa. Well, I think the stores, it's, it's an excellent branding thing, too. Like, it creates awareness for the brand and probably creates some desire. You know, you look at the Apple stores, right? Like not only are the Apple stores extremely profitable, but it's just a cool place. And it, it, it the, the stores in and of themselves help sell the Apple products. Yeah, it's true. You'd, you'd, you'd crack up at a, um, at, I'm not sure what vision you have in your mind when you think of a Buffalo bicycle store in let's say Zimbabwe, but imagine 10, a 10 foot by 10 foot cinder block. That's, has you know tires hanging on the back wall and spare parts on the side walls and a couple of bikes in the middle, and that store might be doing two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of products per year. That's incredible. That kind of puts it right up. You know, that's a solid retail venture in the U.S. Right. So and that might even rival Apple's uh, per square foot profits, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, you have to send me a picture of a, a shop so we can put it in the show notes on this episode. Uh, last question is, what are one or two pieces of advice you'd give to an entrepreneur that maybe wants to do something similar to what you've done? Well, get get in touch with your, your end user. And again, it's all, all answers are found in the field. And that means you, you can't, you can't sit in, uh, you know, in Greensboro or Chicago or San Francisco or New York City and expect to solve anyone's problems in rural Africa. You've got to get there and see how they use the product or how, see what their problem really is to, to answer that. And that's, that's, for, that's for business and it's for not-for-profit. And uh, that's, that's the most important piece of advice I have. 
maybe the next piece is that, you know, the old adage, um, uh, you know, if you make war plans after the first shot is fired, those plans mean nothing. It's kind of the same for your business plan. But assume that your business plan just gets you nimble in thinking about the market that you want to enter. But then after you enter that market, you know, be prepared to change everything. And that's, that's, you got to go in and be humble and learn, learn all that you can about the markets you're serving and learn about the opportunities that might be you know, obscured or people might be blinded from seeing because they're not in that market. That's the advantage of going to the market. You will see things that no one else can see. So those, those to me are the two best things, you know, ensure your accounting is square, ensure you have integrity, ensure you're building teamwork and, and urgency. But I think those, two, those two things would be the greatest two things I think I've learned. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. It's great talking to you. I appreciate all the info. I think this was a great episode because it really kind of runs the gamut of so many things that entrepreneurs need to think about, whether they're doing a not-for-profit or a for-profit business. So good stuff. Thanks. Really cool. Thanks, Tyler. See ya. there's one message FK drives home, it's that you need to get out in the field, talk to your customers, and see how they're actually using your products or your competitors' products. What could be better? How are they using it? What's breaking or missing? Those are your opportunities, and many times those are the opportunities you can't see when you're sitting in an office. There were two other key lessons for me. First, it's that you need to empower your employees to make decisions on the ground in real time and trust their judgment. FK uses locals to manage and run their operations because they know what's best for their communities, but he provides them with the info needed to steer their actions toward the end goal. Make sure your employees have a clear understanding of your mission and what you expect them to accomplish. Give them the right tools and resources to make it happen, then let them know they need to meet those goals. But stop there. The good ones will ask questions as needed, and you can recommend what's worked well for you or others in similar situations. But your goal is to create an autonomous unit that can operate without constant oversight. That's how you scale. The second is to create measurable criteria to evaluate new opportunities. As an entrepreneur, we all have a million great ideas we'd like to pursue. Picking the right ones and staying focused on them is hard unless we have clear data to drive our decisions and reinforce our commitment to them. I know, we want to do it all, but it's important to focus on the good ones. If you're bouncing around ideas for your first or next startup, I have a guide to help you choose the best one. I'll link to that in the show notes at thebuildcycle.com slash podcast. While you're there, send me a quick note on the contact form with any feedback you have on this episode or any of the others. Here's hoping you're thinking global and making an impact. Until next time, keep building. Keep building.